Excellent. Well, uh, welcome to our final Making Sense of God night. Um, thanks for coming on and hopefully uh, tonight will really serve you as we sort of unpack this question of hasn't science made faith obsolete? Um, you guys all know who we are, but I don't know who's behind Kate's screen other than I'm assuming Kate, but in case there's other people out there that don't know who, you, who we are, I'm Simon, this is Brendan. Um, we're both involved at Sovereign Grace Church, Warunga. I'm pastor and intern. Brenda's a pastor at the church. And really the heart behind these nights is, is to probably two things. Start a conversation about some of these questions that really can sometimes be a bit of a, a stumbling block or a, a challenge to understanding the, the Christian faith and, and how we're understanding who God is and, and how life and God uh, interact. So tonight we're looking at science. Um, and so hopefully tonight we'll really serve you as you think about this topic, um, as you engage in conversation about this topic. And uh, we want to encourage you to ask questions tonight as well. So please uh, utilize the chat or send a message um, to me. You can uh, text my number, which is actually Craig, our uh, audio guy, our sound technician. I love Craig. Yeah, he's, he's just you know, value he, for money. He is good, value for money. We really get good value out He's of a dark it. horse. He's a smiling assassin. And he makes these nights, I think he triples the quality. That's it. So we really appreciate um, him doing the sound tech stuff. Yep. Um, okay, cool. Well, um, all right. Uh, Brendo, Brendo's been doing a lot of thinking about this topic over the last couple of weeks. I've seen him reading all these books, which he's going to recommend tonight. Um, and so my job is to try and just draw out as much of the, the thinking and the, I guess, the, the knowledge that he's accumulated. Um, so I'm just asking questions. <laughs> Don't expect anything good from me other than some questions. I might ask some questions back. <laughs> last time he asked me a question, for those that listened in last time... <laughs> Got real awkward because I didn't really have an answer. And, yeah. Anyway, good so you did great, actually. I'm gonna, you were awesome. I'm going to try not to. Yeah, man. I'm going to avoid those questions tonight. Anyway, um, so Brendo, uh, I mean, we've got lots of questions to cover tonight. The first one probably is, um, you know, why is it so hard for people to understand how the Christian faith sort of relates to science? How do people sort of make sense of that? Yep. Uh, as you sort of think about it. Um, and as you've sort of read and, and, and also probably wrestled with it in your own faith. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in our culture, there's increasing sense that faith, particularly like if we're talking religious faith, seems like very hard to have. It, you know, it seems like you have to be a basically an idiot to have faith. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we, we feel that way. I think we live in a technological age where technology has increased so much that, you know, I can play out my phone and I can get a radar and I can see weather patterns and, and rain coming and going. And so the world isn't as mysterious as it was 2000 years ago where um, people believe the gods controlled weather and events and, and things in the world. So I think there's less mystery in daily life. I think that's part of it. Um, I think that there's a popular belief out there that Western society is built on evidence and facts. Um, our civilization is built on evidence and facts and that evidence and facts can explain everything and therefore faith is relevant. I think that there's a popular belief out there that that's the truth. Um, we're going to talk about that more. It's not, not the case. Um, 
The Bible also, I think, seems to be full of these miraculous events um, and our regular lives, we don't observe all these miraculous events. And so as a result, I think we live in a sceptical culture that says, if I haven't observed it, why don't I observe that in everyday life? It must be an impossibility. It must not be able to happen. Um, Also, our culture that we live in now, unique from other cultures, is a culture actually that's extraordinary extraordinarily critical of past cultures Mm. it looks back at past cultures and sees them basically all as being quite oppressive and wrong morally wrong um and as a result uh some of the things that uh we we um hold to you know as christians i think um it, it seems at best irrelevant at worst it seems to be morally wrong um also, there's some ideas that I think have been popularized by kind of the new atheism in particular. Um, and one of those big ideas is actually that science and faith are things that are actually opposed to one another. They are in, um, they're mutually exclusive. They can't coexist. And so I think all those things put together is part of the reason why I think, you know, in our, in our culture, we find um, this idea of faith to be very difficult to understand. Mm. Yeah, I definitely, you know, as you, I'm sure, uh, perhaps maybe you've had conversations uh, yourself where uh, it's almost as if those, you know, faith and uh, science have been pitted against each other. You know, they are opposing. You can't have both working together. Right. Um, so maybe, maybe you could kind of give us a little bit more. You know, how do you see faith and science working together? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, a lot of, and in fact, probably the, the most of um, what we have now as, as um, modern scientific age that we live in has actually been the result of um, pursuits of people of faith. Mm. So most modern science actually started with deeply religious people and often deeply religious Christian people. So you think about big names, you know, from hundreds of years ago in science, names like Kepler or Galileo or Newton, Isaac Newton, all were deeply religious Christian men. And they had this belief that because the Bible teaches that God is a God who's in control of everything, and all powerful. And as a result, that God is in control of everything, the universe is ordered and structured. They therefore had this belief that things in the world should obey logic and should have organization to them and should be able to be observed and to be measured and to be understood. So science, their science came out of their faith, actually, mm. their belief in the God, specifically the God of the Bible. Uh, I think there's another issue that even makes that question possible how can how do science and faith coexist um and that is that there's this assumption in our culture and i think i alluded to before there's this assumption in our culture that actually um our uh, secular culture is purely based on evidence when the truth is all people are actually people of faith it doesn't matter who you are and, you know, even just raising that, this idea of all people being people of faith, some people might be like, feel uncomfortable with that and say, no, you know, I think we're all, you know, people in Western society and secular culture, by and large, people that don't have faith, you know, aren't religious per se. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about 
having faith, believing in things that aren't scientifically provable. And so many of the underpinnings of our whole culture and society are pinned on things that are simply matters of faith that are not provable. So let me give you some examples of those. A, a biggest one, just to kick things off, would be human rights. It is not possible to scientifically prove that human rights exist. Um, and yet the vast majority of us deeply believe in human rights. Um, capitalism, you know, it, it's a faith-based system. It's a, actually, it's an ethical framework, you know, for structuring society. It's not scientifically provable. Mm. And yet there's these things that we deeply believe in as people that are bedrocks of our society that are actually based on faith and not based on science per se. Um, I think the other issue that really complicates things and makes this question of how can science and faith coexist um, because I think we have to realize that science is actually at its base, you know, really observing things that happen in the world, observing mm. how the natural uh, world, you know, has come about or how it operates and trying to understand them. And then technology is applying the things that we observe um, to come up with new solutions. Uh, now, I think part of the problem we have and part of the reason why we think that actually science can understand everything is actually sometimes evolutionary theory gets confused with atheism, which is actually a worldview. It's not possible to scientifically prove whether God exists or not. Um, it's not possible also to explain the origin of life from evolutionary theory. So evolutionary theory, people can understand it to mean a whole variety of different things, but in its simplest sense, Evolutionary theory is the idea that through a process of natural selection, um, creatures, biological living organisms, uh, the weak amongst them are naturally selected. They disappear because of inherent weaknesses. And those that develop mutations that have some sort of benefit to them as a species survive, the strong survive and the weak are eliminated. But it's actually evolutionary theory is something that describes things that are already living and how they interact. It cannot, by definition, explain where life came from in the first place. The only way you can explain where life came from in the, in the first place is to have some sort of faith-based belief. You either believe that behind everything, ultimate reality is just the universe itself, what we see, and that would be an atheistic belief structure or an atheistic worldview, or you choose to believe that behind everything that exists in the universe is God. And that is a theistic worldview, a theistic belief structure. They're both faith-based systems. But I think so often people confuse and conflate, mix together atheism and evolutionary theory science when actually they're two different things altogether. Um, and I think that's part of the reason we get confused with this question, how do faith and science fit together? Mm. Yeah, I think um, as I'm listening to you, it's really helpful, <clears throat> excuse me, just the way that you sort of unpack that in a little bit more detail. Um, one of the questions that people might be wrestling with, and, and I guess like we're Christians, so uh, the way that we're even understanding the world that we live in is, is looking at it through a biblical lens. Right. So um, if, we, if, we, if we look to Genesis, because right. uh, you're talking about origins of life, um, if we look to Genesis, um, how do we make sense of what we read in Genesis 
and what we read in a science textbook or perhaps yeah. maybe what we were taught at, at school because unless someone sitting on this, this Zoom call has actually done some extended study in science beyond school, right. most of us are probably building it off our high school level right. uh, science yeah, right. and this sort of stuff and then yeah. what other stuff we might have gone and read. But yeah. yeah, no, it's a great question. Like, And I think, you know, a lot of people find themselves in 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 a sort of pickle when it comes to understanding um, Genesis or even dismiss therefore Christian faith out of hand because they maybe they read Genesis or they've heard some things about Genesis, the book of Genesis, and they think, well, impossible. That's the most unscientific thing I've ever heard. It clearly patently didn't happen that way. And therefore Christian faith is ridiculous and I can't, I won't give it the time of day. And I think some people feel that way. And, you know, even at times I can be tempted to, 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 to think that way, or I have it in the past at least. And I think there's a few issues here. I think um, first and foremost, um, you need to understand that the book of Genesis was written, you know, some 4,000 years ago, and it was written by people and a place in a very different culture to ours. And therefore, it's answering questions that, you know, modern 21st century people are not asking. It's not a scientific textbook. Um, by any stretch. I think some of the things that it contains in it are deeply scientific in, in terms of descriptions of things, but you have to understand that it's not trying to ask the same questions that I think often we're wanting to ask of it. Um, another issue is that you have to realize that um, the, the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books and that it contains a whole variety of um, different genres of writing, different styles of writing and things. And that really matters, you know, uh, because it contains things like metaphor and common turns of phrase and expression. You know, part of the way people get caught up in a lot of these discussions is they're saying, well, do you take the Bible literally or not? You know, and yet literally, you know, a lot of the things that I'm sharing tonight have been influenced by John Lennox. And John Lennox is literally such a slippery word about what do you actually mean when you say literally? Like uh, the example John Lennox uses is if, if, if I said, you know, Simon, I saw you flying down the street this morning. Am I speaking literally or metaphorically? Well, as speaker of English, right, on one level, I know that you weren't literally flying down the street. Um, no, my wings. you weren't flapping your wings. You weren't in an aircraft flying down the street at some sort of low altitude, risk-taking flying. Uh, I know it's a turn of phrase that means you're going fast. And yet, even though it's a metaphor, this idea of flying, I'm still describing something really literal. In the sense of I am describing your literal high velocity as you were traveling in your car this morning. So was I speaking literally? Well, on one level, no, I wasn't. It wasn't literalistically speaking. You know, I, I, you weren't actually flying. But on another level, I was very, very serious and, and not just pure metaphor. I'm describing something that really actually literally happened in that you're moving fast. And similarly to the way we speak to one another, the Bible's the same. It's written so people can understand it and it uses words in ways that people kind of understand. And so I think part of the trap um, that people get into is, is trying to think, well, when you read something, um, you just have to take the words and literally translate them and to find their meaning when actually real life doesn't work that way. That's not how we speak. And so we actually have to be careful um, to understand, you know, the words that the Bible is using. And the Bible uses it all the time. Uh, for instance, um, you know, uh, Jesus says himself, you know, in the Gospels, he says many different things. He says, I am the bread of life. 
was he speaking literally and metaphorically uh, Barclay, when he says, I'm the bread of life? You know, is Jesus actual bread? Well, he's not actual bread. And yet the, the bread signifies something fundamentally true about Jesus in that he's the sustainer of humanity. Hmm. Jesus says, I am the door. Is Jesus a physical door? You know, well, we know doors from observing doors enough to know that Jesus is not a physical door. He was both man and God. Um, and yet he's describing something that's literally true of himself in that he is the gateway through to the deep things of God into life. And so we have to do the careful work of understanding um, what the Bible actually means on its own terms. So when the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and God said, let there be light, what does it mean that God said, let there be light? You know, God doesn't have a physical voice box. God is a spirit, the Bible says. And so when it says, and God said, it's not literally talking about speech in the way that you and I speak. It can't be because God is not a physical man. And yet it is literally speaking about something very true in that God, in a way that's different to us, and in a way that in some ways is mysterious to us, communicated. He spoke. Mm. And so things came into being. And so I think that's the first thing. Um, I think um, just by way of context on this whole conversation, I know this is probably a point where I'm going to talk a bit at length on and, you know, feel free to later ask questions if, you know, because um, I'm just going to try and paint broad picture strokes on, the, on this picture. Mm. I think the next big thing we need to understand when we're thinking about Genesis and how do you mesh Genesis is to realize that this is a question of our age. And if you wind the clock back 500 years ago, people were asking a very different question. 500 years ago, people were saying, this guy, Nicholas Copernicus, is saying that the um, earth is not at the center of the universe and that the earth moves around the sun and rotates around the sun and that the sun is still. And how can that possibly be true? Um, how can that possibly be true? Because there's passages in the Bible that say things like uh, in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16, 30, it says, tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. So clearly that passage, according to people's understanding, seems to teach that the earth does not move. And yet this scientist is saying, yes, the earth does move. Mm. Um, when actually the science of the day said it did not. Uh, other passages, um, things like 1 Samuel 2, 8, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. So the earth is stable, according to 1 Samuel. It sits on pillars. It has incredible stability. How can then it be moving? And I think people were really puzzling and wrestling with that. And they inherently thought, readers of the Bible thought, these things cannot be true. And yet the truth is that's an uncontroversial truth for us now. We know that the earth actually does move. So how do we reconcile these things? And that's where we come full circle back to what we've been talking about, about the use of language, this idea of literal speaking. Um, the Bible uses deep metaphor because that's the way humans speak. And the Bible is written by God to speak to people in a way they can understand that makes sense to them. And so, um, you know, the Bible uses the language of things as they appear to us to explain things to us so that it can be comprehensible to us. Um, you know, God could have used incredibly detailed um, scientific language from what our understanding will be in the year 2200 mm. that would currently to us, because scientific language changes all the time, be completely incomprehensible we couldn't understand it but god didn't choose to do that he mm. used to ch chose to use language that's accessible to people from all times um 
And so in talking about that idea of the language of the earth and its stability, I think John Lennox explains it so well. Um, I've got a quote here from um, him that I think just speaks to this idea of literally and literalistically. And then I'm just going to put the basic positions people have into three different categories. Um, John Lennox says, science has been able to show us that the earth is stable in its orbit over long periods of time, thanks in part to the obedience of gravity to an inverse square law, to the presence of the moon, which stabilizes the tilt of the earth's axis, and to the existence of the giant planet Jupiter, which helps to keep the other planets in the same orbital plane. It is, if you wish, a literal or true stability, even though it does not make sense to under understand the word stability literalistically as referring to motionlessness. Mm -hmm. And so what John Lennox is saying, taking this issue of the movement of the earth, which was the big issue 500 years ago, the Bible is using language to communicate things crystal clear to people of all time, that the earth is stable, that it's resting on its foundations. And that is literally true even though it's not to be taken literalistically because it's describing things in a manner that people can understand. Mm. And I think that's the beautiful, timeless truth of the Bible is that it is true, um, but it's written in a way that's accessible to people. And so it uses language like we use language. Um, what if what's 500 years from now? Yeah. Well, it's probably going to be something completely different. I was just wonder what we like, yeah, we're sitting on now going. It's probably going to be something completely yeah. different. So I think the final thing I want to say about Genesis, um, you know, in terms of, you know, reconciling it with science and, and thinking about it that way. So um, is this that there's in terms of the, the days of creation, because they're the big things that people, you know, spend a lot of time arguing about and talking about. Um, there's basically three views um, that Christians have on, on these. And I think, um, you know, uh, if you're wrestling with Genesis, you know, saying, how can the Bible be true? I'd say Christians have different perspectives. So make Jesus the key issue, not, not this one. But here's the three perspectives. Just some people would take it really literally and say it's a literal um, six 24-hour periods. Um, and that's what Genesis is describing. And so that's one possibility mm. that, that people have um, that, you know, seems to uh, possibly counter um, what the scientific record shows. I think that's pretty uncontroversial that, scientific records seems to suggest the world's you know pretty young it's about four billion years old um, um, that actually view um, has been around for a while but it was made popular in the 16th century actually about 600 years ago the second um, view would be more the time periods view this there's this idea that the days reflect um, you know six periods of time per se um, you know there's a passage second Peter 3. Um, verse 8 says that to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. The Lord's hands out of time. So possibly it's referring to six periods mm. of time. But actually, since the very first Christians um, were around as early as, you know, the, the second and third century um, after Christ. Um, so, you know, coming on now 2000 years ago, um, 1800, 1700 years ago, people noticed that in reading the account of Genesis, that though God says, let there be light uh, very early on in uh, day one, um, uh, on day four, God creates the sun and the stars. And people puzzled over that and saw that that seems to be a difficult order to make sense of. It doesn't seem to logically make sense. And so for well over a thousand years, 
another common way to understand what Genesis uh, 1 is teaching is that it's not describing things in terms of uh, chronological order, but it's actually mm. describing things in terms of logical order, in terms of form. Mm. Okay, so what do I mean by that? Uh, what I mean, and this is what John Lennox explains, I think is really helpful, is that if I'm trying to explain to someone, or if I'm a, a builder trying to explain to someone how I built a hospital, I'll probably describe to you, well, first of all, I dug a big hole in the ground, then I got concrete and I poured in the concrete. And after I filled the concrete up, I built some foundations and then I built a superstructure and then I started fitting out the place, you know, finally with the reception areas and the you know, entertaining areas, the lights and light installation and all the furniture and fixings. That's how a builder might describe how a hospital was built. But if I asked a surgeon um, how the hospital was built, he might give a very different answer. He might say something to the effect of, well, we organize in a very, very good way. We put all of the operating theaters at the back of the hospital close to the intensive care unit so that it can have easy access. We made sure that as a person comes into the hospital, the signage is clear and they've got lots of parking access so they can easily get to our waiting rooms and um, our physician's rooms within the hospital. Um, we made sure that the feel of the hospital is quite hospitable and welcoming so as to put the patient at ease and to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Two very different perspectives on, on the same issue. One is describing things logically, sequentially, or in terms of chronology of how the process unfolded. The other is describing in terms of form, um, how is the, the hospital logically structured? And so uh, two uh, famous patriarchs in the Christian faith, St. Augustine in about the fourth century and uh, St. Clement in about the second century said they think the Genesis or Genesis describes things in terms of logic and form rather than in terms of timeline chronology. And I think that's probably what would um, rest best with me. Um, another reason why you can actually see that is in the Hebrew itself, uh, because the article or the is not included on days one, two, three, four, or five, but only on days six and seven, highlighting mm. that the important piece of the order is the creation of man on day six and the Sabbath day of rest on day seven. Mm. Okay. Lots of process. Lots of process yes. there. Sorry, that was very long. No, no, but it's helpful. Like it's it's good um, thought-provoking stuff. Uh, and so anything that sort of Brendo is sort of raising or discussing, um, or me. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to underplay your contributions, Farrah. Um, please just uh, type in a, a question into the chat or send a text through on that number and we can we can address that in a moment. Um, so just building on some of the stuff you've sort of shared then around that sort of Genesis narrative, um, what sort of a, like, how, how does the Genesis story help us to understand the origins of life? Because if, if we're looking at that in comparison to perhaps maybe scientific theory on origin of life, um, how do we balance that? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of big, teaching moments um, in Genesis, particularly Genesis 1 and 2. Um, the first is that God is the foundation of all that exists in the world. God spoke or he communicated and everything that exists came into being. So the origin of things rather than being the universe just in and of itself is a God, a creative God who made everything that exists. And therefore, the, the world was made in a logical way. It was made in a controlled way. It was made in a purposeful way. Things have purpose because God stands behind all things. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that rather than man just being another animal 
or being equal to all the rest of the creatures. Mankind was made different from all the rest. Mm. Mankind, according to the scripture, was according to the Bible, was made uniquely in God's very own image and therefore different, distinct. Mm. Um, to have a relationship with God, to reflect God, to be God's representative, to have a different level of dignity from all the other creatures on the earth, to have sovereign rule and reign over the earth, um, to exist in, again, a relationship with God. And so mankind is unique, is different, and has a clear purpose by God um, to know him, enjoy him forever. And that's one of the things that I think in our secular culture we grasp with is where does the value of people come from? Um, what makes us different? Um, but secondly, God... Um, or thirdly, God, um, as a result of man turning his back on God and rejecting God's uh, fatherly creation of everything, his purpose for everything, decided to take control of himself and reject God's sovereign rule and reign. And as a result, God cursed the world that we live in and the world is plagued by death, decay, brokenness, pain, and misery. And it's the fruit of a brokenness between who we were always purposed to be related to. And that's God himself. Mm. And so I think they're the big teaching moments in the bar in the book of Genesis. That's really um, the thrust of Genesis and specifically on the back of that, that God hasn't just left mankind and the world to itself, that God intends to restore it mm. uh, by promising again and again and again, that he will create a people and that he will send ultimately a deliverer to come and rescue them. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think that's interesting. And, and I wonder if perhaps maybe as you think about conversations that you're having around this topic, um, there is the potential to sort of blend or, or sort of just place humans and animals in the same category. Um, so there's that sort of, you know, that evolutionary process uh, and yet we see in, in Genesis, there's a distinction there. Uh, and so that can sometimes be maybe a, you know, a source of difference in terms of opinion about people's, you know, belief of scientific theory um, and also then people's sort of belief about what the Bible teaches. But as we, as we study the Bible, we really do see the, the significance of humans made in the image of God in comparison to uh, the creatures, the other creatures that, that, that are on this earth. And I think like certainly even in my sort of intern studies as I've been looking at this particular, um, I guess, story, Genesis story, that's been something that's been really right. uh, emphasised for me is just like, yeah, there's, there's clearly a distinction there. Right. I mean, obviously I knew it, but as you study it more and more, you right. see yeah, that distinction. Absolutely. And that actually can then go on to sort of shape the way in which we, we view, um, I guess, life and, how, yeah. and, and, and the significance of life. Like, I had a conversation with Brenda the other day that um, my colleague made a, made a comment to me about, um, you know, he asked the question, you know, why is it that we are okay with euthanasia, euthanizing dogs, you know, when they've come, come to a point of ill health, but we're not okay with euthanizing humans? Uh, and I thought that was an interesting question. I think it probably said more about probably my colleague's view of where, what, where animals and humans right. are. And it made me as a Christian, as I think about, what, what Genesis says around, you know, how we were made, um, there's that distinct difference. And so obviously right. I had a different sort of take on that, but it was interesting right. that he asked that question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one other question that, um, that you sort of touched on uh, early on when we were talking about faith 
um, was, you know, you sort of made the, made the case that we all have some, some faith, you know, we put our faith in some things that we, we cannot explain. Um, so what evidence is there for the faith that you profess? Like, yep. Yeah. So I think the best way to think, so a question I, I have often been asked by people in the past is, well, okay, if you want me to believe in Jesus, you know, prove it to me, give me some evidence. And I, I guess what we've been talking about here is how actually we all don't operate that way. You know, like coming back to what you're talking about, what's the difference between animals and people? I mean, it's something our society is really wrestling with actually, because scientifically speaking, you know, if you're just going to be, you know, reductionistic about the whole thing, it's not possible to prove there is a difference except to say, you can say they're different, but you can't put a value on it to say one is more precious than the other. Mm -hmm. So prove to me scientifically that it's right to uh, raise cattle for meat, but it's wrong to do that with regards to people. So in other words, rearing humans to eat. Rearing humans to eat, yeah. yeah. Well, you can't prove that scientifically. That's a value. I think we, I, I haven't met anyone before that is advocating for raising humans for meat. You know, don't get me wrong. I think the thought is terrifying, but it's impossible to prove it um, because that is about, and yet all of us intrinsically believe it, that, that, that that's not right. Um, so there's a whole raft of things we actually believe that are not scientifically provable. Um, so I think a better way of thinking about it is explanatory power. It's not only does this have evidence for it, but also does it explain my experience of life and things around me? So uh, John Lennox in uh, one of the books, I think it's um, God, the, God's Undertaker. It's a, it's a book about science and faith, basically. It's a great. John Lennox, if you don't know him, he's an Oxford uh, maths professor, and he's also a Christian apologist, and he writes a lot of great books about science and, and faith and things. And um, he's, he was giving a lecture and, and someone came to him after the lecture and said to him, you know, I think it's interesting you talking about Jesus being God and man. Do you think it damages your credibility as a scientist to believe in something like that? And uh, he said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in human? Well, can you tell me what human consciousness is? And this guy kind of looked at him and said, he was a quite well-known physicist and said, well, I can't tell you what it is. He said, but you believe in it, right? He's like, yeah, I do. Um, he said, well, can you tell me what energy is? And he said, well, we've got laws and things that describe it, but I guess I can't really tell you what it is. And he said, does it damage your scientific credibility that you believe in these things? No, it doesn't because of their explanatory power. They explain our experience of things. Our experience is that we have consciousness. Mm. We can, we, we're self-aware, we exist, we can think, we can have independent thoughts. It's not something that we can prove for ourselves, but it makes sense of reality. We believe in energy because it operates according to laws and things that we, systems we have described it. We don't know what it is per se, but it's sensible to believe it exists because of its explanatory power. And I think that's the approach you need to take to this question of is Christian faith to be believed? Um, is its explanatory power? Does it make sense of life as I experience it? And I would say profoundly so. I think there's there's scientific reasons. The fine tuning of the universe um, is one such example that all of the degrees of the way the universe exists, the, the, the 
the, the laws by which the universe operates are just perfect for life existing. If you change any of them minutely, life, would, as we know, it would not be possible. I think that's one of the reasons. I think there's historical reasons for the life, for the teaching, for the death, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that different from every other religion make it historically uh, plausible, more compelling, um, and something not to be overlooked. Um, I think there's intellectual reasons for believing in Christian faith. I think the teaching of Jesus himself and the profound forgiveness and love towards others that he teaches is so compelling. I think uh, the moral value that the Bible gives to people, their dignity, regardless of ethnicity, um, is something that is so compelling. The message of grace through Jesus alone, uh, despite the sinfulness of people, that God chooses to forgive and accept those who simply trust in him and that he would send Christ to die in their place, that they could know him, I think is so intellectually compelling. And lastly, I think there's experiential reasons to believe in uh, the gospel and Christian faith. The way I've seen the gospel and the message of Jesus completely transform a person's life and change them from someone whose life was completely a mess to uh, completely um, oriented towards loving God and doing good towards others. Mm. And the, the good fruit, the goodness I've seen of Christian community and the way it can affect and positively influence culture and, and people's lives. I think combined all together, all of those things together, I think are very compelling reasons for actually um, giving serious consideration to the claims and teaching of Jesus and the Bible. Mm. Evidence-based faith. I think there's often, faith, there's often yeah. the um, assumption that, you know, that, that there's no evidence right. to support the beliefs that right. Christians hold. Right. Uh, but yeah, clearly there's plenty of evidence for it. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Um, I reckon we need to give some time to, questions i haven't had any questions come through on my phone have there any have there been any there's no questions on the chat either so now's your chance if you have a question um send it through anything that was discussed um and maybe anything that you wanted to raise while they're maybe thinking about a question yeah i mean i want to raise um oh yeah tell you what i want to raise i want to raise these books we use this is a good time to plug good books. So maybe you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, this is interesting. I haven't thought about a lot of this stuff before, probably because I don't get paid to think about all this stuff. Like you clearly have a lot of time in hands. Yeah, true. Um, so here's some good books that I recommend um, depending on what your questions are. And good bookmarks by the looks of it. Yeah, man, classic bookmark here. This is a lovely one. Um, oh, maybe not. It's got pictures of me on it, <laughs> me and my wife. Um, it's, you know, decent pictures, but you know, one of those photo booth things. Okay, Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. This is the, um, uh, the, where the name of the series comes from. Uh, there's a really good chapter in this book. Um, chapter two, Isn't Religion Based on Faith and Secularism on Evidence? And Tim Keller just really unpacks that and helps you understand more that actually um, you can't, we can't even as people prove that um, we're not insane. You know, something as simple as that. Anyone who's walked with someone with mental illness would know that often they're deeply convinced that they are insane. I'm not saying you are insane, but so many things we can't prove and so many of the, the foundations of um, secular age that we live in are actually not self-evident truths. 
but are faith-based positions that we all hold to, or a lot of people hold to. Um, secondly, two books by uh, John Lennox that Matt's professor I was, I was telling you about before from Oxford. First is God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Um, really excellent book about science and faith um, together. And then Seven Days That Divide the World, um, looking at the book of Genesis um, in particular and how you can understand that as a Christian. Um, the last one I probably suggest that I didn't put on this list, I didn't bring a copy with me, is if you just kind of maybe thinking, hey, what's a really good book to just get my hands around the issue of what's the historical evidence for Jesus? Is that something I can take seriously? There's a, a well-known, he started his life as a historian uh, historian, ancient historian slash academic, and now he's in pastoral ministry, um, John Dixon, and he's got this, a book called The Skeptic's Guide to Jesus. And that's probably the best book I've read, just about the historical um, facts, things that you can know about Jesus and his life um, from the perspective of a historian. Um, so there's some recommendations mm. getting started. That's great. Some good recommendations. All right. So we've got a question. Um the question is, as a Christian, can people believe in evolution or can Christians believe in evolution? Um, maybe that saying that God started the process of evolution. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, there's this common idea out there that uh, that you have to take your pick. You know, I think we were touching on that before. You either believe in God or um, you believe in evolution. And I think what we've been talking about is how science and philosophy have got themselves a bit muddled and people have been um, mixing up belief in evolutionary theory with atheism as a worldview and as a philosophy, which is not provable scientifically. So they're two very different things. So can you believe in evolution um, and, and be a Christian? Absolutely, you can. Some people would use the word theistic evolution to describe that. So the idea that not just that God kicked off a process because the God of the Bible isn't a deistic God. That's the idea of deism is that God is this kind of like force who's distant and removed from the earth, whereas the Bible pictures a God who's intimately involved in the earth, mm. you know, present, um, involved in all the minor details that happen everywhere, a sovereign God of infinite knowledge and, and power. So Theistic evolution uh, is the, the idea that God um, is sovereign and in control of and uses the means of evolution. So in some ways, this idea of choosing between God and choosing between evolution, it's kind of similar to trying to say, well, how do you explain the existence of the Ford motor car? Take your pick. You either have to believe in Henry Ford or you have to believe in the Ford production line. Which one will it be? Take your pick. And that seems crazy, isn't it? You know, we know that both is tr uh, are true. You know, it's Henry Ford as the inventor, but also the production line that he invented. Mm. Um, it's, you know, agent and mechanism, you know. Um, and I think that that's the same perspective, Christian perspective on this. Now, I'll, I'll read you a quote, actually, just on that topic of um, evolution and things. I don't probably agree with everything um, um, that this particular Christian believes in, but this uh, is a very eminent biologist. His name is Francis Collins. He's actually the head of the Human Genome Project. Um, and so he's one of the most acclaimed biologists and he's a committed Christian at the same time. 
And um, this is Francis Collins talking about around the time of his con conversion to Christianity um, alongside his study of science and biology. He said, I found this elegant evidence of the relatedness of all living things an occasion of awe and came to see this as the master plan of the same almighty who caused the universe to come into being and set its physical parameters just precisely right to allow the creation of stars, planets, and heavy elements and life itself. Without knowing its name at the time, I settled comfortably into a synthesis generally referred to as theistic evolution, a position I find enormously satisfying to this day. And so there's uh, Francis Collins saying that he basically, as he looked about the interconnectedness of all things, came to worship God, seeing behind everything uh, a master plan of a God who sovereignly is in control of everything. Mm. That's great. Um, feel free to ask a question off the back of that. I think one's coming. Um, there is one that I've just received, but is there another one coming? All right. Um, we, uh, it's, not, it's not come yet. So I'm going to ask this question and we can always circle back. Okay. Um, so I've had someone suggest that Christians only tend to read material that supports Christian faith, and therefore we don't realize what we believe isn't true. Any tips on how to respond when someone is pressing you on that? Yeah, well, I think a, a good way to answer that would be, um, well, the first question that comes to mind is, what examples do you have of that? So what what would you want a Christian to read to, to you know, and, uh, you know, that potentially contradicts um, what Christians believe. And the second thing I'd probably want to say is talk to me about your own practice there. You know, so how do you try and develop a balanced perspective and to read all things? And have you ever personally taken time to look at, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about tonight, the historical claims of Jesus? You know, mm. um, I do think it's a big problem just for all of us at the moment, people don't actually read much at all flat. I mean, we probably read as a whole culture less nowadays than, you know, met for many, many decades, many, many generations mm. um, because of the internet, you know, it's information overload. Social media often defines what information we come across in our personal likes and preferences. So we surround ourselves in these sort of echo chambers mm. and bubbles and things where we're not exposed to different ideas. So, yeah, so I'd be more interested to know from that friend, that person, what do you actually mean by that? Um, what have you observed? What's the thing that you would want? If I'm a Christian friend, me to read that I haven't read um, that you would see is contradicting. And then how about for yourself? What have you read of Christian Christianity to understand that, you know, um, you know, or are you perhaps surrounding yourself only with a certain type of thinking as well? Mm. Um, yeah, look, I think... I, I would say like there's a, yeah, like sometimes that might be a, a true, true claim that like, oh, we haven't read widely on a yeah. particular issue, but all people do it. Yeah. And sort of, it's sort of like, okay, well, let's, it's, it's a great opportunity actually. All right. Well, let's engage in um, some of the content that you're reading and why don't you engage in some of the content yeah, that I'm reading and great. let's start a conversation. I think if someone's actually open to engaging in different people's ideas, I think that's great. Mm. Um, but sometimes it could actually be not really a question as much as a comment, you know, to say, hey, 
I think if you read a little wider, you'd realize maybe you're a bit silly for believing what you do. Mm. Um, that's definitely the the um, um, the, the the way some people can be asking it. I mean, I remember. Um, <laughs> It seems so dated now, but I remember I was at uni and some guy, the, the, the Dan um, Brown, um, the Da Vinci Code had just come out. And I think some people get muddled that it's like a work of, it's not actually fiction. Historical. I remember a guy saying to me, he didn't say this, he was a bit rude, but he said, he said, have you heard of the Da Vinci Code? At, this was at uni, by the way. And I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And he's like, well, your stuff then, aren't you as a Christian? And I thought to myself, mate, it's a work of fiction. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway enough on that um okay i uh, got a couple more questions coming through which is great thanks for sending them through really uh helpful um okay so when speaking to someone who's who doesn't have faith in christ um it can be tricky when our, when my reason is the Bible says this, but because they don't believe the Bible as as God's authoritative word, how do you how do you even begin a conversation? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. It's a great question. I mean, ultimately, you know, a Christian perspective, and maybe this is interesting if you're listening in and you're not a Christian, but a Christian perspective ultimately um, is that Christians don't force people into becoming Christians. It's impossible to force someone into becoming a Christian. It's impossible to manipulate someone into becoming a Christian. It's impossible to like someone into becoming a Christian. The only way a person can become a Christian is by a supernatural event where God actually opens your heart, opens your mind and leads you to see Jesus rightly and put your faith um, in him. And so for a lot of people, actually, I mean, you, there has to be a desire there to actually read and understand um the bible um and that's not something that you can necessarily create for a person or it's something you can't create you know from a christian perspective however um i think um so just to get me the, the words of the question right exactly what do you do where someone doesn't well, even believe this if you're then if you're every time you sort of present a case you're presenting it based on the bible but they said like i don't see that as authoritative so like yeah. it's so, sort of like saying my my, yeah. my daughter's so, homework book says this you know so so i guess where i would go where and it's to me if the, the obvious place to go is is just to be like okay talk to me about your experience of the world where do you find do you believe there's meaning to life do you believe that people are precious and valuable and to be treasured do you feel that it's wrong to oppress those that are weak but that there's something beautiful in loving on those without to serve others and care. For. And then how can you believe that to be true? On what, what foundation do you have a right to believe that's true? And yet do you not feel deep down that those things are really true, that people do have rights, that they do matter, that my life matters, that relationships are real, that love exists, you know? It's not just a, a meaningless chemical reaction, but that genuinely love is real and that relationships have meaning, um, um, that my life has meaning and purpose. Do you believe those things? The foundation of where I have come to believe those things to be true, the firm foundation is that that's what the Bible teaches. Mm. Um, and would you be interested in reading more about 
what the Bible teaches about those things and how beautiful it is and how it makes sense of everything around around us, you know. Because I think I think if the whole reason you're trying to share some with some of the Bible is as some sort of collection of proof texts to explain or to prove um scientific points well that's not what the bible is Mm. the bible is a story of god the god who wanted wants to be back in relationship with people you know it's it's in some ways it's a love story you know the bible explains the purpose and meaning that exists for the, this world and everything in it. Mm. So that's why you read the Bible, to learn more about those things, to learn more about God, to learn more about the purpose for which you were made. Mm. Um, so I think that's what I'd be drawing on to because without something at the foundation, such as God, you, you have no reason other than sentiment, like this idea of I kind of feel this is right and nice for believing those things. Mm. Like if there is no God... You know, there's no difference between um, shooting someone in the head and buying them flowers. They're just two random events in a meaningless existence that will soon be long forgotten, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's something that our culture is actually grappling with, you know, is that beyond this sense of shared sense of what feels right to us as a culture, like collectively there's certain things that we feel are right. Like we feel it's right to protect children and to disapprove of um, incest and to disapprove of pedophilia. We feel collectively that's right. Um, But beyond that, we don't actually have any firm reason to believe it is right no more than we have a reason to believe it's right that a lion should hunt creatures that are weaker than it. That's a reality of the universe we live in. So I think our culture is really wrestling with that, but I think people deeply feel that things do matter. And mm. that's, that's probably where I'd want to mm. appeal and say, have you ever wondered? And where do they could, get that basis from? And where do you get the basis? And have you considered that there might be firm reasons for believing those things to be true? Mm. Um, yeah, that's helpful. Um, we've got a we've got a few questions, but I think this one this one would be good to tackle. How would Adam and Eve fit into the theistic evolution view, since evolution believes that humans develop from monkeys? Right. Yep. Can you so I, I would say there's different perspectives on this, and I would say this is probably an example of um, where Francis Collins and I would have a different perspective. So Francis Collins would say that God was sovereign over a purpose of evolution. And at some point in history, you know, monkeys became a separate species of people, a race of humans, and that was God God creating out of the earth, Adam, the first Adam, who was actually a person, and the first Eve, who was actually a person. The rest were humanoids and so on and so forth, not actually people. Um, that could be indwelt by the Holy Spirit that had immortal souls and so on and so forth. So that would be one line of thinking with it. I don't think from my thinking um, that that is what I sits most comfortably with me. Um, I think the fact, if, as a Christian, you have to believe in the incarnation, that God became flesh 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that sense that God kind of um, intervened in, in the earth to create a person, so to speak, in a mysterious way that we'll never understand. My personal perspective would be in the same way that God did that for Jesus Christ, he so also did it for Adam and Eve to make them different from the rest of creation, to make them actually as people. Um, now, you have to believe in that to be a Christian, not the physical Adam and Eve, but definitely as, as it comes to the incarnation, you have to believe that. I'm just trying to get my head around a little bit, but it sounds quite similar, though, to the view you just said there, where he's sort of saying, like, there's an evolution process, but at some mysterious point, there's a transition from monkey to human. Similar, but different in the sense of um, I'm saying it seems better to say God as a distinct creation made a man and made a woman um, as a special creation, distinct and different from all the rest of his creatures mm. um, as Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, and that is somewhat akin to the incarnation of Jesus, obviously not the same, but in the sense that God directly intervening in a different way to have a special creation of people. Mm. Um, and um, I think... For me, there's a couple, two reasons why. One that seems to fit a bit more neatly with the way the Bible describes how God went about creating Adam and Eve. Mm. And secondly, in my mind, it preserves the distinction of people from animals, that people are not just at, at one step of um, change from animals, but that people are completely different creatures from animals which you know as i was saying as i study genesis as part of my study like that you know it's very in my mind it's very clear that distinction that's right. established in in early in the, in the first few chapters of genesis just that distinction between humans and animals yeah so you i guess as a christian if you're wrestling with with this and it's good to be wrestling um, how do you make sense of what the Bible actually teaches on that? Um, so, yeah, it's helpful to get your thoughts on that. That's good. All right. Um, last question. Um, not really about science, but could you explain a bit more about how in Genesis creation is in logical order rather than chronological order, i.e. so was the world made in different order to what the Bible says it is? So... Uh, in a way, but I guess uh, actually no, because what we're saying is the Bible is saying something very different than trying to give a chronological order. So we're not saying that the Bible is or the world is made something different. We're trying to say this is actually the what was in the author's time, the author's intent when they're trying to describe how the earth was made, that they weren't trying to describe a chronological order of things but they were more akin to a doctor trying to describe how a hospital was formed. That the, the logic of what is being described is a logic of form, a logical form rather than a chronological form, mm. if that makes sense. So different from the builder who's saying, day one, I dug a hole, then I filled the hole with concrete. They're the doctor saying, well, this is a hospital that was designed first and foremost um, with operating suites to be of easy access to and convenience to doctors. 
to be welcoming so that the car park you know leads naturally into the foyer and so on and so forth two different ways of thinking and although it can be a little bit difficult it's hard for us to get our head around such a different way of describing things because we're from such a strong western secular culture there's a very specific and detailed way of doing history mm. we do history and order really matters not every generation and every culture thinks about history telling history in the same way um events for a lot of culture matter more than the order in which those events are told um, and we actually do the same sometimes when we're telling stories we actually see this play out in the gospels all the time Mm. The Gospels do not give the same chronological order of events mm. in and around the cross. They do not. They have different chronolo chronologies, different ordering of events, because it's not trying to tell events chronologically. Mm. Um, it still is an accurate history. Absolutely. Is it God's word as a Christian? Absolutely it is. It's inerrant without mistake. Um, but it's a different culture that goes about things in different ways. So what I'm saying is when the, the author was writing Genesis, when Moses was inspired by God to write the, the book of Genesis, he was using a logical, a form-based ordering. So in this understanding, days one, two, and three are about forming of the earth. So in days one, two, and three, light is separated from dark. In days one, two, and three, the waters are separated from the earth, so the earth is filled. You know, this is about forming of the earth, the preparation of the earth. The second half of it, days four, five, and six, is not about forming. It's about filling. The sea creatures fill. The birds fill the air, the sky above. The land-based creatures fill the earth. And so you've got this logical framing of how the earth was created, all ordered by God, all done by God with these distinct um, stages of forming and filling, um, a logical description, uh, a functional description, a form-based description rather than a chronological description. Mm. Um, and that's not a new idea. That's what St. Augustine, you know, said back in roughly the year 400, you know, the 5th century, 4th, 5th century. And um, that's what St. Clement said, um, carefully reading the scriptures back in the year roughly 200 AD. So, you know, 1800 years ago. Mm. So these are not just ideas that have come about from people on the basis of science going, well, we've got all this science now. We probably need to change how we're thinking about things to make sense of scripture. No, this is careful reading from men that love God and take God's word as it is, trying to understand what did um, does God mean? What was Moses' intention, the author's intent, as he wrote this book for us to understand? So. Mm, that's helpful. All right, uh, that's that's all the questions. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably wrap it up there. Thanks so much for asking questions, and um, thanks Craig Chapel for doing all the audio, and thanks Brendo for doing a lot of thinking about this and preparation for this. Really appreciate it. Hopefully, it's served uh, you guys as you've been wrestling and thinking through having conversations with people about this sort of stuff. Um, keep the conversations going, get access to some of those books. Uh, hopefully that'll serve you um, as well. And let's keep the conversation going. Like we um, love nothing more than talking to people about Jesus and helping anyone in a journey they're on. Um, maybe you're listening to this on YouTube after the fact, and um, we would love to start a conversation with you about Jesus. Um, maybe just a final quote to send us out um, as we go. Um, just to help you see that actually 
even to the trained eye, the book of Genesis in particular, because we've been talking a lot around the book of Genesis, is something that actually even scientific people find compelling. Uh, here's a quote from Andrew Parker, who was the research director of the National History Museum in London. And he wrote this uh, in his uh, book. He's not a Christian, actually. He's now a self-professed agnostic. Um, he's a specialist on the evolution of the eye and light. And he was uh, encouraged repeatedly over a long time by his students to read and consider the accounts of Genesis from a... Uh, evolutionary biological historical perspective because they thought it seemed um, interesting to see how that dovetailed. And he writes the following. Here then is the Genesis enigma. The opening page of Genesis is scientifically accurate, but was written long before the science was known. How did the writer of this page come to write this creation account? I must admit rather nervously as a scientist averse to entertaining such an idea that the evidence that the writer of the opening page of the Bible was divinely inspired is strong. I've never before encountered such powerful, impartial evidence that the Bible is the product of divine inspiration. Isn't that interesting? A surprise account from a evolutionary biologist. Mm. Uh, there's lots out there to think about. We would love to keep the conversation going. Thanks for joining in tonight and I hope you guys have a great night.